I think we're going to get started so that we have more time for discussion rather than sitting around. Okay, uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to the first session of today. I'm even more delighted to that it's the session with two of my very dearest and oldest friends. Uh, first of all, Verity Hart, and I've got all the, the, you will see in the program, there are all the grand titles, so she, Verity is George A. Saban Professor of Philosophy and Classics at Yale. Um, her first book was Plato on Parts and Holes, The Metaphysics of Structure. Uh, one of her more important publications is called Old Chestnuts and Sacred Cows. <laughs> She's now writing a monograph on Plato's Philebus, which I already know is brilliant. Uh, Melissa is the author, is sorry, is professor of politics at Princeton and author of, as far as I know, hundreds and hundreds of books. Melissa has the most, <laughs> most energy in it of anybody I know, but m most recently she gave a wonderful series of Carlyle lectures here, um, which are now in the process of being produced. The Carlyle lectures were called Constitutions Before Constitutionalism, Classical Greek Ideas of Office and Rule. The way we're going to proceed is that Verity's going to speak to her paper for 30 minutes, then Melissa's going to speak to hers, and then we'll have 50 minutes or so of discussion. Okay, Verity, thank you. Okay, um, thank you uh, very much, um, uh, MM, for the introduction, Melissa, for agreeing to come and point out exactly the false things that I say, and <laughs> all of you for being willing to listen on a Saturday morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, there is a handout, which you should have. Can I also check, since this is a very long, narrow room, whether Bruno, who's the person whose name I know, who's near the back, can hear me, for example. Perfect. If you stop being able to hear me, will you wave at me in some... Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, so it's a little hard to know what to do, since the paper's out there, it's done, nothing I can do about it now. I'm not imagining that you've read it, and yet I have 30 minutes to talk to it. So what I'm going to do is read a 30-minute shortened version. So if you didn't read it, don't worry, and if you did, I apologise. Um, OK. Uh, so, and I'm not going to read through the text, but I thought I would give, you know, Gail some ammunition. Um, OK. It, so in Plato's Mino, we find one now familiar value of knowledge problem, the question why knowledge should be valued more highly than mere true belief. In context, this is a question about practical knowledge and its practical value. My paper is focused on a different question, whether knowledge has value beyond its practical value and what that value might be. And I focus on a difficult passage towards the end of Plato's Philebus, not unconnected to being in the process of writing a book about the Philebus, where a ranking of varieties of knowledge is given. Now, the, the passage itself raises a lot of exegetical questions, but I know that for some of you that's not your thing. So the focus of my discussion on this occasion is certain philosophical questions. Uh, what questions one might ask about the value of knowledge and what question or questions Plato does ask here, and accordingly what kind or kinds of value he attributes to knowledge. And in particular, why, according to Plato, I should value 
being a knower. And I'm going to suggest that, or at least I do now suggest, that Plato's answer has a structure, at least, of more general philosophical interest. So a little bit of scene setting for the uninitiated to the Philebus passage, which is 55 to 59. Socrates and Protarchus are now investigating Socrates' family of candidates in the dialogue's overall contest as to which of pleasure or knowledge is responsible for the happy human life. Members of the family include being wise, understanding, remembering, correct judgment, and true calculations. Note that the list is limited to good exercises of the relevant broadly rational capacities, so correctly judging rather than simply judging, for instance. The focus is the family as a whole, particularly crafts or forms of expertise, the technai, and branches of knowledge, the epistemi. And the focal question is whether some members of the family exceed others in purity and truth, as proved to be so, the dialogue takes itself to have established, for certain members of the pleasure family, the rival contestant in the dialogue's contest. In response to this focal question, Socrates and Protarchus produce a ranking, beginning with a ranking of manual crafts, moving up through varieties of mathematics, and concluding with dialectic. Such ranking seems an odd idea, but for the present, two points are salient. First, that the ranking is based on how the ranked items compare in terms of certain criteria, what we might think of as norms for knowledge, here accuracy, clarity, and stability. Second, insofar as these are criteria for a ranking, a hierarchy of value is being proposed, and insofar as these are criteria for greater or lesser purity as knowledge, the value in question looks epistemic. There is, however, evidence that Plato wants to build out from this to other kinds of value, and I'm going to come back to that towards the end. Protarchus largely goes along with Socrates' ranking, but he initially protests the claimed superiority for dialectic recalling Gorgias's claim for the superiority of rhetoric, which is not otherwise ranked. Socrates' response to this is your text one, which I won't be reading. <coughs> for my purposes, what is important in this text is that Socrates explicitly sets aside a comparison in terms of utility in the passages underlined. But this directs our focus, I argue, to what I call useless knowledge, knowledge pursued without practical object. But there are some important caveats. In particular, I don't take Socrates' focus on useless knowledge to commit him to thinking that the highest ranked forms of knowledge thereby preclude practically beneficial outcomes. Indeed, in the broader context of the dialogue, I think he must deny this. By the same token, Nothing prevents Socrates attributing to the manual crafts, which are evidently practically beneficial, a share of the value he finds in useless knowledge. Indeed, ranking them all on a single scale implies this. So I take understanding the classificatory distinctions that Socrates draws in the passage alongside his ranking to be key to understanding how he pulls off that combination of views. So... Uh, the ranking is on the second page of the handout, right at the bottom, uh, <coughs> just in outline where we end up. 
he ranks in three broad phases, starting from the bottom of the diagram. First, he distinguishes manual crafts in terms of their accuracy. He ranks carpentry and crafts like it ahead of music and crafts like it, said to include medicine, farming, navigation, and military strategy. By dint of a curious stripping exercise, Socrates analyzes every manual craft into two elements, an element of measurement and an element resulting from trained experience. The measurement element is found in manual crafts of both ranked groups, those like music and those like carpentry. But the music group has a preponderance, he says, of the element left over once measurement is stripped out, so as, quote, to have much of what is not clear but little of what is stable. Carpentry, in contrast, through its use of measurement tools such as the rule or square, is furnished with much accuracy and accordingly ranked more highly than music. In the second phase of the ranking, so the middle of the diagram, Socrates isolates the measurement element of the manual crafts and distinguishes two different measurement crafts, an arithmetic of the vulgar and an arithmetic of the philosophers. The central difference is their use of different units for counting and weighing and so on units like oxen or armies in the arithmetic of the Volga, the philosophical arithmeticians instead insisting on entirely uniform units. Socrates and Protarchus agree that philosophical arithmetic outstrips that of the Volga in accuracy, even more than carpentry outstrips music. Volga arithmetic is an integral element of manual crafts of both groups ranked. Oxen and armies, for example, are units for two of the less accurate crafts mentioned, farming and military strategy. And Socrates also mentions forms of calculation and measurement specific to the more accurate crafts of carpentry and commerce, a second example. In summing up this second phase of their ranking, Socrates makes explicit that unlike the music and carpentry groups, and despite their use of different base units, the differentially ranked forms of arithmetic have the same objects in their sphere of concern, measures and numbers. The evidence for this is in text two, which is a difficult text that I would be happy to discuss in Q&A. I stress the point because the sameness of object between the two forms of arithmetic bears on how to understand the difference and the difference in ranking between them. On the reading that I propose, when a farmer counts oxen, then at least as far as the arithmetical operations involved, she is engaged with numbers, no less than the arithmetician proving a sum. But she's engaged in a manner said to be less clear and accurate. Importantly, I don't take this to be a criticism of agricultural methods of counting, but a reasonable appraisal of the type of counting that's appropriate to the practical goals of farming. One way to spell out such difference in accuracy is by appeal to the idea of tolerance. Carpentry is ranked above music or farming, in part because it involves measurement tools, the carpenter's rule and the square. These bring carpentry the consistent and stable standards of measurement necessary and available for its projects. But the degree of accuracy required for the projects of carpentry is limited. In engineering terms, this degree of accuracy can be specified by tolerances, the degree to which the dimension of a built object may vary without affecting function. 
The passage's recognition of such tolerances applies no criticism of the relevant crafts. Rather, it recognises that the epistemic norm of accuracy is here on good grounds, limited given these crafts' practical goals. Philosophical geometry, in contrast, is study of the geometrical properties and relations in their own right, with no corresponding limits on relevant accuracy. The third and final phase of the ranking, so the top of the diagram, is the decision to place dialectic rather than rhetoric ahead of all the forms of knowledge thus far ranked, and the claim that finds in text one that there is no other power of our soul ahead of dialectic. The assignment of dialectic to the pinnacle of their ranking is offered putative support in text three, where we find a set of contrasts familiar from elsewhere in Plato, and in which, one might think, we find Plato positing different objects for knowledge and for belief. Now, this broad issue is an exegetical minefield. And my own view is that here, at least, Socrates' conclusion that there is no reasoned understanding or truest form of knowledge concerning things that come to be does not preclude application of the purest forms of knowledge to things that come to be, including in contexts relevant to the crafts. That the majority of the crafts do not have the permanent beings, as he says, that are the concern of dialectic, as there the craft's focus of concern, does not preclude the pertinence of such permanent beings to these crafts, health, for example, to medicine. Philosophical arithmetic, I think, offers an example. If both agricultural and philosophical counting deal with numbers, one less perspicuously than another, then arithmetical knowledge has possible practical application in farming though the arithmetic that farmers actually engage in is not philosophical arithmetic. Of course, numbers are far from the only objects of pertinence to agriculture, which include oxen, yokes, and wheat. And numbers are most certainly not agriculture's craft-defining focus. Nor is this point about possible practical application restricted to the mathematics. Earlier in the Philebus, Socrates described an avowedly dialectical method and then illustrated it by showing its application to two mundane crafts, literacy and music, the latter, music, being the lead example of this later hierarchy's lowest group. Hence, when Socrates asserts that there is no truest form of knowledge concerning things that come to be, he's not, I say, denying the potential application of such knowledge to things that come to be. He is denying that the things that come to be are the sphere of concern of such knowledge. If we want to understand the difference then between Socrates' highest and lower ranked forms of knowledge and the relevance to that difference of whether or not they are focused on things that come into being, we need a clearer framework for doing so. Such a framework, I now argue, can be found in the classificatory moves that are made in the passage alongside the ranking. So in the prelude to the ranking, Socrates distinguishes two branches of knowledge. This is text four, last one on page two. This one I will just read. We hold, I suppose, that one part of the knowledge concerned with disciplines is craft-like, demiurgicon, whereas another is concerned with education, paideia, and nurture. Isn't that so? So just using the Greek underlying, I'm going to call one branch demiurgic and the other pideutic. 
And one puzzle about this distinction is that it is no sooner made than it recedes from view. Socrates doesn't explain it, nor does he indicate which of the forms of knowledge he ranks are of one rather than another sort. It may be reasonable to think, with others, that when Socrates turns from the manual demiurgic crafts to philosophical arithmetic, he silently shifts to the piedutic branch. But that doesn't explain why the distinction is introduced and then dropped, nor does it explain how classification, this division of knowledge, comports with ranking, which implies a unified scale. A useful starting point, I think, with comparable vocabulary comes in the Protagoras. Hippocrates, in the Protagoras, wants to study with Protagoras, the famous sophist. Socrates embarrasses him by suggesting that he therefore wants to become a sophist, just as a prospective pupil of the medical Hippocrates wants to study with him to become a doctor. Socrates then helps him out of the embarrassment with a distinction. The learning that Hippocrates hopes to get from Protagoras may instead be of the sort that he got from his writing teacher, his kithara teacher, and his physical trainer. He didn't, Socrates says, learn from these each discipline with a view to techne, so as to become a craft practitioner, a demiurgos, but with a view to education, to paideia, as pervits a free individual. So the Protagoras distinction turns on whether, in taking up a craft, Hippocrates has as his object that craft, its goals and practices, so that in learning wrestling from his physical trainer, he has in mind the goals of wrestling, and what, in the Protagoras <coughs> context, is considered the acme of any techne, namely the ability to teach or instead has in mind some more general educational value of the relevant course of study. In either case, Hippocrates will gain knowledge in wrestling. His knowledge will have practical application and be embodied in action. Indeed, to the extent that knowing how to wrestle is part, if only part, of the trainer's expertise, Hippocrates will acquire at least some of the trainer's knowledge. What seems to differ is his project in so knowing. So understood, the Protagoras contrast concerns different possible goals an individual might have in embarking on a course of study. That befits the Protagoras context. In the Philebus, I argue, the same vocabulary flags a distinction marking a comparable context, contrast in the goals or projects of distinct disciplines as opposed to the individuals who may take them up. The distinction can be illuminated in light of the norms that govern success in such disciplines. The general idea is that Socrates' distinction tracks whether the project of a form of knowledge is governed by practical norms or epistemic norms. Importantly, however, all forms of knowledge considered as such involve epistemic norms. The Philebus focuses on norms of accuracy, clarity and stability. The proposed substantive difference between demiurgic and paideutic forms of knowledge is that the projects of demiurgic knowledge involve some degree of subordination of the epistemic norms to the practical norms, whereas in paideutic knowledge the epistemic norms are paramount. This is illustrated in the point about the two forms of measurement. Accuracy, clarity and stability of measurement are standards of evaluation for carpentry, 
but only to the degree necessary for the practical project of constructing good houses or ships. No such restriction applies to philosophical geometry. Their practical projects explain why demiurgic forms of knowledge and their practitioners can subsequently be described in text three as expending their efforts on things that come to be. The vocabulary chosen underlines this point too. Earlier in the dialogue, demiurgy, craft-like making, was made definitive of intelligent causation of generated beings, as exemplified both by familiar crafts and, in the Philebus's view, by the intelligent construction of the cosmos as a whole. Such craft-like making is inevitably bound up with focus on things that come to be. So understood, Socrates' division of knowledge is consistent with offering a unified ranking. Every form of knowledge is answerable to the epistemic norms of accuracy, clarity, and stability to some degree. This allows for an epistemic ranking, a ranking in value as knowledge, by the degree to which the relevant epistemic norms are weighted in the projects of the relevant forms of knowledge. That the ranking is epistemic in focus goes some way to explain why Socrates doesn't trouble to locate everything within his classification. But the introduction of the classificatory division signals, I suggest, the foundation for the ranking, and the subsequent neglect of that division paves the way for a transition back to the aspect of the contrast on which the Protagoras focused, namely attention to the goals not only of different forms of knowledge, but of the individuals who purport to engage in them. Since even demiurgic <coughs> forms of knowledge, such as carpentry, are answerable to epistemic norms to some degree, there is at least the possibility of a person engaging with carpentry for the reasons Socrates offered Hippocrates, for education, paideia. This would involve the imposition of an external aim, alien to, but not inconsistent with, the project of carpentry. But what about the converse, say, demiurgic engagement with philosophical arithmetic. I have argued for the possible practical application of the highest and presumptively paideutic forms of knowledge. Practical application, however, should be distinguished from having practical norms. The paideutic forms of knowledge are not answerable to practical norms as part of their project. What this suggests is that external imposition of a practical aim would in some way corrupt Pideutic knowledge. Socrates hints at as many as three possible corruptions of knowledge. The first and most explicit is vulgar arithmetic. While there is, I have argued, no criticism intended of the farmer who uses oxen as units for counting when yoking oxen to her plough, the very name implies something wrong in one who takes such an approach to arithmetic itself. The second hint comes in text three, if I am right to hear a criticism of the person who takes himself to be engaged in inquiry into nature, but whose focus is on processes of generation and of acting and being affected. The third most speculative instance is rhetoric, which is nowhere ranked and brought on stage only as putative rival to dialectic. In text one, Socrates explicitly sets aside the question of the utility and power of rhetoric. But were he to take up the question, one can well imagine him concluding that rhetoric is no form of knowledge, but merely a corruption of philosophical dialectic. 
What this suggests is that in pideutic knowledge, there is no room for divergence between the project of the knower and the project of the knowledge. Otherwise put, pideutic knowledge is tightly integrated with the psychology of the pideutic knower. Foregrounding such a link between psychology and knowledge is, I propose, the work done in the final stage of the ranking, both by the identification of dialectic as a power of soul to love truth and to do everything for its sake, as Socrates says, and, in text three, by bringing attention to the contrasting objects that are foci of interest and attention for knowers with the highest and lower ranked forms of knowledge. In turn, this helps to build the bridge I take to be crucial to questions about value and knowledge. Rescue a little ant. The modern value of knowledge problem, often called the Mino problem, concerns epistemic value. Hence, it investigates the value of knowledge in contrast to mere true belief. The Philebus, though it constructs an epistemic ranking of knowledge, is nevertheless focused on a different comparison, the value of knowledge in contrast to pleasure. Its target is what, for want of better, I shall call ethical value. The Philebus connects these two. Knowledge ranked epistemically higher is also given a higher prize at the close of the dialogue in a ranking against pleasure. What explains, then, the dialogue's connection of these two sorts of value? What is the ethical value of knowledge for Plato? Socrates' classificatory framework portends a connection between different values for knowledge, as the Protagoras once again can introduce. Hippocrates learns from his writing teacher, his kithera teacher, and his physical trainer, not so as to become a craft practitioner, a demiurgos, but with a view to education, paideia, as befits a free individual, as Socrates says. This conveys value distinctions built into contemporary Athenian social hierarchy, grounded in the lower social status of these three staple functionaries of classical Athenian education for an elite male citizen like Hippocrates. However, if Socrates exploits this evaluative hierarchy in the Philebus, he also subverts it, most notably when he places carpentry, which for his, carpentry, for his contemporaries would be an evidently banausic or vulgar occupation, places carpentry ahead of medicine, farming, and military strategy. So social snobbery is not doing the work of the argument. Some of the work in the context of the Philebus is done by the focus on measurement knowledge. This captures the epistemic character of all the forms of knowledge discussed. The various manual crafts aim at and grasp the craft-appropriate measures. The mathematical crafts concern measures and numbers, and even dialectic, at the top of the ranking, can be linked to grasp of measures and proportions against the backdrop of their earlier discussion. In the dialogue as a whole, measure, in the sense of due and appropriate measure, constitutes value, characteristic of the good mixtures that craft knowledge produces. Alongside beauty and truth, metrical proportion is one of three features through which we grasp the good, and measure wins first prize in the dialogue's overall contest as the lead good-making feature of the best human life. Now, we may want to ask just how measure constitutes value. 
That's a good question. Not one I answer here. The measurement focus, however, helps show that just as demiurgic knowledge is linked to the production of good through the imposition of measure, so piedutic knowledge grasps the good in grasping measure. But if the metrical character of knowledge makes the dialogue's ethical good an object of knowledge, why should knowledge of good make knowledge itself good, independent of its role in the practical production of goodness? To sketch a possible answer to this question, I turn to two central features, as I suggest, of the epistemic hierarchy. Responsiveness to reality, tracked in the ranking through accuracy, and assimilation in the knowledge, and in the knower in virtue of that knowledge, of those features of the reality to which a branch of knowledge is, to greater or lesser degree, so responsive. For both fat features, I make much of the passage's interest in measurement tools. When Socrates ranks carpentry more accurate than music, medicine, or navigation, he points to carpentry's use of tools for measurement, such as the square and the rule. But why is carpentry's use of such tools significant? It's not or not just that they are tools for measurement. Measurement frames every craft's responsiveness to reality, even lowest-ranked music. Music, however, grasps measure not by using a measurement tool, but by experience, practiced aiming. Socrates' higher ranking of carpentry thus seems to turn on its use of tools for this. Especially in the context of crafts of his time, I suggest, what the availability of tools reflects is how carpentry's domain allows for tools that identify and stably track the relevant dimensions of measurement consistently across contexts with an accuracy adequate to carpentry's practical purposes. In contrast, the domains of medicine or navigation are changeable or complex in ways that render tools for consistently and accurately grasping and enacting the measures pertinent to the practical object of the crafts either inaccessible or inapt. Still, why link higher epistemic value to use of such tools? We might alternatively think that the greater fluidity or complexity of the domains of medicine and navigation make these arenas, if anything, of greater skill. If Socrates does not think so, it is, I suggest, because he is focused on the degree to which the project and domain of a skill secure stable execution with little room for individual variation. His appeal to tools reflects the way in which, in crafts with tools, the power for stable, accurate execution is built into the skill, built into the tools of the skill, and the power they provide to affect things of the relevant measure. Tools, of course, are put to use in the exercise of craft knowledge. They are, one might say, an externalization of some aspect of the relevant craft knowledge. As such, I propose, tools in carpentry offer Plato a figure for the value-laden qualities of being a knower. Assimilation is crucial here. Measurement tools provide an illustration. They are so constituted as to reflect, but also to embody, the measure that they enable the craftsman to grasp and to produce in knowledgeable use. In a context in which, as I have stressed, measures are constitutive of value, measurement knowledge, like measurement tools, can embody these goods by assimilating these measures. I have in mind, in part, a view in which good-making features of the known are assimilated in knowing, a view that's suggested in text three's implied commitment to the stability of those with reasoned understanding in light of the stability of the objects of their focus. Equally, to think only of assimilation may mislead. 
First, it suggests a focus on the content of knowledge, where Plato, I think, has his mind on the psychology of the knower in virtue of their knowledge. Second, it suggests something overly passive. Again, measurement tools prove helpful figures. A straight edge embodies straightness, but it does it in a particular way, a way that, when in knowledgeable use, enables it to effect straightness where and when straightness is called for. Importantly, though a straight edge may be responsible for the production of straightness in individual timbers, a straight edge doesn't determine, but rather authoritatively responds to what straightness is. It does so, that is, with the accuracy necessary for carpentry's practical purposes. Applied to knowledge, this makes Platonic knowers measures in a fashion quite distinct from the Protagorean homo mensura. The Protagorean measure determines value. The Platonic knower, I am suggesting, embodies value, measure, in such a way as to have the power to authoritatively respond to genuine value. In virtue of such power, the Platonic knower can, where appropriate, effect such value, but her effecting such value in a practical context is not what this value of knowledge consists in. This, as text one suggests, is a value for useless knowledge. This is the structure of Plato's account that I think of some general philosophical interest. It's a value for knowledge, independent of its practical utility, consisting in the valuable features that belong to a knower in virtue of their knowledge. It is a value for a knower in being a knower. On this account, the psychological condition of being a knower brings with it valuable qualities, qualities instantiated in the highest degree, in the highest, most useless forms of knowledge. This may help to explain why, whether or not he would be open to virtue-theoretic accounts of knowledge, Plato routinely regards knowledge itself as a broadly ethical virtue. pleasure to respond to Verity Hart's stimulating paper in exploring Plato on the uses and value of knowledge, and I'm grateful uh, to the organizers for inviting me to do so. And I've chosen to respond by focusing on one claim that she makes in the context of the Philebus, as you've heard, which is the claim, as she writes, that external imposition of a practical aim would in some way corrupt paideutic knowledge. That's on page 41 of the written paper. There is a handout also for my talk, which I hope everyone has. There are probably a few more here at the front. Um, and um, I will, and that is actually R2 on my handout. And what I want to do is to transplant that claim to the context of Plato's political philosophy in particular in the Politicus, also known in English as the Statesman, which is a dialogue that inquires into the definition of political knowledge. And I'm going to broadly gloss the Philebus's vocabulary of paideutic with philosophical. I think that's warranted, um, but it's also a move that one has to make. And Verity went some way in the paper into showing why one might make that move. It might be something that we want to discuss. But for purposes of my paper, I'm reading paideutic, broadly speaking, as philosophical. 
And so the question is whether then external imposition of a practical aim would in some way corrupt philosophical knowledge. That's the question that the Philebus suggests um, on Verity's account and that I want to, see, to evaluate in the context of the Politicus. And it seems to me that in the Politicus, in fact, the corruption claim does not apply and that it's actually very interesting to see why that is not the case. Rather, what we find there is that statecraft, um, politicae episteme, is a form of knowledge that is answerable to practice relevant norms, but in a way that does not subordinate or corrupt its epistemic norms. And in fact, we'll find that the very distinction between practical and epistemic norms in the statesman may be ill-formed. And so I'll conclude then by addressing very briefly the final point that Verity was making um, in the very interesting suggestion that she developed that the Philebus develops a view of the ethical value for a knower in being a knower. And I want to suggest that the Politicus, for its part, very interestingly does not develop any view of the ethical value for a knower in being a ruler. And it's interesting why that should be the case. In other work, I've been thinking further about the ethical implications of the utter absorption of the account of the person with political knowledge into the role of ruler and to what extent those, um, those can be um, pried apart. So as you've just heard, um, I'm going to sometimes say heart because um, that's what I've put in the written paper, although Verity and I are very old friends. Um, uh, I'm, heart asks whether knowledge has value beyond its practical value and she considers in the Philebus in R1, um, A, whether the project of a form of knowledge is governed by practical norms or epistemic norms. And as you heard, her thought um, in R1B is that a project may become answerable to practical norms, an epistemic project, so long as its epistemic norms remain paramount. And I find this way of thinking about the relationship between the practical and the epistemic in the Philebus very promising. It successfully disposes of some misguided worries that one might have, such as the fear that high-minded philosophical knowledge could not or must not have any practical relevance on pain of thereby failing to count for philosophical knowledge at all. So Hart makes room for what she calls the practical application of philosophical knowledge. But she insists that it would be corrupted if its epistemic norms were, be, were to be subordinated to practical norms. And that, again, is R2, the corruption claim. Now here I'm going to pass over her own rather tentative elaboration of the claim with reference to the three possible examples of it that she found in the dialogue. And she rehearsed those just now. As I explain in the written paper, I didn't find any of those three cases particularly compelling. But notwithstanding that, I think it's worth focusing on the seriousness of the corruption claim itself as it might apply to politics. Because it would seem potentially to threaten the value of the knowledge possessed by a statesman or ruler, insofar as such knowledge must have, in some sense, a practice-relevant aim, and yet, I think, on deep platonic principles, must also be a species of philosophical 
knowledge. So I can't prove here that the statesman's knowledge must be philosophical knowledge. That thought draws on other work, wider work on the dialogues, done not least by our distinguished chairperson um, who has written, um, and I quote, that if the statesman is the person who knows, he will be the philosopher. And so I take that as a starting point. I've elsewhere suggested the caveat that we should think of statecraft not as a job in philosophy, but rather as a job for philosophers. So statecraft, the statesman takes up the practical role of ruling, but that role can only be taken up properly by a philosopher. But on that view then, the corruption claim is a real worry because it would portend that the practical norms involved in ruling must in some way corrupt the epistemic norms embodied in philosophy itself. However, I'm going to argue that that's not the case, that the, the statesman does not support the corruption claim. And substantively, what I'm going to suggest is that to understand that, we have to dispense with a usual way of thinking about distinctions that the dialogue draws, which is that we can't think of them in terms that import standard distinctions between theoretical and practical knowledge. So we'll come to uh, places in the statesman where many translations in England, Fran English, French, German, Italian, Spanish, and so on, all translate in terms of theoretical and practical as if we know what that means, as if it were an Aristotelian or a modern version of that distinction. And I'm going to argue that those translations are misplaced, that to understand what the statesman is doing, we have to eschew that language and also eschew with it language of application. And here I am rejecting a particular way of thinking about the application of philosophical knowledge to practical projects which brought with it in Hart's paper also, as she explained, the view that practical norms will always be of less epistemic precision and accuracy than purely epistemic norms. Again, for Plato in the context at least of political philosophy, that's not the case. Now, of course, one caveat then before I um, introduce you to the Politicus distinctions, of course, as, Pla as Verity has also written and said this morning, Plato has different purposes in these dialogues. And as she writes in the paper, Plato's distinctions in knowledge often differ according to context. So in saying that the way that the Politicus works on these questions is different from the Philebus, I'm not implying any criticism of her reading of the Philebus. And I'm not attempting to come up with an all things considered view of Plato on the uses and values of knowledge. Nevertheless, the two dialogues, as she herself has noted, do share a considerable degree of shared vocabulary, and they both engage in categorizations of knowledge. And so I think it's interesting and relevant to compare them, even if we shouldn't expect necessarily to find them agreeing. Okay, so now I turn to the Politicus. So on the handout, I'm now in um, uh, Roman numeral two, classifying forms of knowledge in the Politicus. So this distinction begins um, in R3 with a division of all kinds of knowledge. Um, so remember that we just heard that eventually the Philebus works its way to a distinction between um, uh, demiurgic and paideutic knowledge. 
Instead, in the Politicus, the uh, Eleatic visitor, who's the main, the dominant speaker of this dialogue, introduces this distinction between practice and gnostike kinds of knowledge. And you can see in R3b that Christopher Rowe, again, and many others in various languages, just translates this as practical versus theoretical. But I want to not follow that translation and instead explain how I think it should be translated. Now, actually, the terms that I've adopted in this translation, in fact, I borrow from a footnote in Verity's paper. Um, I had been um, uh, discussing the merits of the translation of discerning elsewhere in, in teaching, but I was very happy to find that when she discusses the Politicus in a footnote in the paper, she uses this translation, and I think it's right, even though I think its implications go further than she perhaps saw in rejecting a theoretical practical distinction and the talk of application in this dialogue. So the distinction is, I'm going to say, between action involving and discerning. And it's important to note here that there's no instance before Plato of this term gnostike, the term for discerning here. And it's not used in Plato anywhere other than here. So I think that's one sign that we can't just be importing a theoretical practical distinction here as if it were already well understood. Plato is signaling a novel move here and we need to try to understand what it is. So the distinction to understand it, we have to turn back to how it's actually set up inductively by the visitor. So this is now R3, little Roman one and little Roman two. So he, he introduces the distinction by giving us inductive examples or illustrations um, of each kind of knowledge. So in the case of Gnostike, we meet arithmetic. And you will remember that we've just met two kinds of arithmetic in the Philebus, um, the distinction between vulgar arithmetic and philosophical arithmetic. Here, the visitor focuses on arithmetic, as he says, stripped or bare of practical actions, which serves to provide discerning alone. So we're considering now arithmetic independent of under the guise of not being relevant to practical actions. We're stripping it of that relevance. And we contrast that with the practice cases, which are those technae, I'm going to say broadly, involved in handicraft, handicraft production. And the language here, chirurgia, is closely related to the language for manufacture also in the philebus. So these are technae that uh, complete material objects that they cause to come into being. Now, what's interesting about this then is that if we were thinking this was theoretical and practical, we would have to be thinking, so the only practical actions are these, or at least the paradigm cases of practical actions, are these handicraft material production cases, and they contrast only with pure discernment. But we're going to see then that what happens under the case of what would seem to be pure discernment in the next step is that some of those cases turn out to also involve commanding. So if we were thinking that everything practical had come in at the first step and is being cordoned off in the practice, we would be ill-equipped to make sense of what's going to happen at the next step in R4 
when some of the cases of what looked like pure discerning turn out also to be practice relevant in that they are relevant to, in fact, they involve commanding. So it's really R4, which is the crucial move um, for my purposes. So let's, again, look at how that works. So the broad distinction here is between commanding forms of discerning knowledge, ta epitacticon, versus judging forms of discerning knowledge, ta criticon. And if you turn over, um, the, this is um, crucially explicated again in the inductive step where the visitor furnishes illustrations of what each of these kinds of knowledge um, consists in. So R4 Little Roman one. these are the cases of judging, purely judging knowledge. And the example here is calculation, logistique. So look at how the visitor um, describes this. He describes it in terms of not the object of the knowledge, but of the ergon, the task or job of the particular kind of knowledge. So he says, once calculation recognizes that there is a difference between numbers, there surely isn't any further job we'll assign to it than judging what it has recognized. So the only job of this kind of knowledge, the critical kind, criticon kind, is judging. It has no further job. In contrast, look at R4 Little Roman II, the illustration of the commanding kinds of knowledge, which are those illustrated by the master builder. And there's a tiny, a couple of tiny glitches in my gloss on the handout, uh, such as that defining the master builder who must not only judge, I meant to write, but also assign tasks to other workers and not complain, not complete his or her own work until those subordinates complete theirs. And again, it's crucial to look at what the visitor actually says here. He says, it belongs to him, the master builder, once he has given his professional judgment, not to be finished or to take his leave in the way the expert in calculation took his, but to assign whatever is the appropriate task to each group of workers until they complete what had been assigned to them. Now what we see there is that the master builder, the epitactic knower, who remember again is a discerning knower, not engaged in producing material objects themselves, this epitactic knower also involves, engages in judging. So the visitor says once he has given his professional judgment. So he engages in judging, but he also engages in a further task, a further ergon, which is the, judge, the task of commanding. So judging and commanding are yoked together as equally constitutive of this form of knowledge. And so what this suggests, I think, is that discernment in the case of the master builder, the epitactic knower, is already such as to be command apt. It's not an epistemic project that would be corrupted by being subjected to practical norms, or even a kind of theoretical project that is being applied to a practical context. Rather, the very kind of knowledge that it is, and the very job of the epitactic knower, is to not only judge, but also to issue commands. And of course, it's along this branch of the division 
that the statesman will ultimately be found. And the language of epi the epitactic is picked up later in the dialogue, for example, at 299 D8. And to my mind, this is actually a very important understanding of the nature of political rule, that command is of the essence of rule. This is something I argued more broadly in Oxford in the winter in the Carlisle lectures um, to which MM referred. It's interesting that in Greek and Athenian practice also, commanding was one of the key powers distinguishing office holders. So Athenian office holders, for example, were entitled to issue commands, epitopsi. That's one of the powers that actually defined them. So here, this, this, uh, this analysis of what it will be the uh, kind of political knowledge picks up on this, no this notion in the wider culture that it is part of political action to command. Now, I suggested in the paper that we can uh, find something illuminating in thinking about this presentation in regard to um, the analysis by Jason Stanley and Timothy Williamson of knowledge of a proposition being ascribed to an agent under different guises. Now, they use the language of the practical, um, so in, in their own terms. One of these is a practical mode of presentation, and in that mode of presentation, possessing knowledge of the proposition is related in complex ways to dispositional states, and we might think to the dispositional state of commanding. Now, of course, um, I don't mean to say that Plato is committed to the controversial view that there is no special knowing how, only knowing that. I don't mean to commit Plato on that thought. But my thought is simply that um, one might have knowledge which can be, in one case, you can imagine a couch potato um, political knower who simply sits on the couch but never actually is even engaged in formulating commands, much less issuing them, versus the kind of political knower who is engaged in the epitactic ergon, the epitactic task of actually issuing commands. Now, not on the handout, but in the paper, it's actually very interesting that in the dialogue, the visitor does consider the case, not of the couch potato, who doesn't even think about the question of practice at all in my picture, but of what we might think of as the armchair um, ruler um, who is willing to issue advice but doesn't actually have the power to issue actual commands. So think here of the armchair football coaches who will no doubt this afternoon be yelling at the television screen and telling Gareth Southgate what he should be commanding the team to do. Right. Now, in the visitor's analysis, which is actually very interesting, he gives two examples of people who are in the role of advisor to rulers or people who have the power to command, in one case a political ruler, in the other a public doctor. These people, I think we should think of these advisors as epitactic in the sense that they can formulate the commands, and indeed they do formulate the commands, so their knowledge is command apt and it's formulated as commands, even though they don't have the power to issue the commands in a binding way. So I think there's a real difference between the sort of couch potato uh, viewer who has no interest in thinking about what should be done and is just theoretically observing might say, oh, that was a good strategic choice, but is not formulating the commands that should be followed versus the armchair 
person who is advising, formulating the commands, even though not actually empowered to issue them. Okay, so that brings me then to the penultimate part of the talk. Um, this is uh, Roman 3, where I want to now think about the question of the norms themselves that apply to this kind of uh, practical, come epistemic, if you will, um, knowledge in the case of the knowledge of statecraft. And I want to do that again in reference to Hart's um, assessment of the Philebus's question of applying epistemic disciplines to practical projects. As she said this morning, um, her discussion makes use of the idea of the lesser precision that disciplines such as engineering that are answerable to practical norms require and involve. Um, comparable to the higher standard of epistemic norm of accuracy that belongs to the purely epistemic projects. And she illustrated that with reference to the idea of engineering tolerances. But in the Politicus, I think it's actually clear that the epistemic norms that apply to um, ruling um, are actually um, if anything, I think more precise than um, the uh, epistemic norms of a pure philosophy project might be. So first of all, we can see in Roman 3b that actually the visitor makes a point of saying that it's the same set of norms that apply to the techni that are seeking to produce the fine and good in their products and to the philosophical inquiry into the statesman in its attempt to reach its target. So the dialogue makes a point of saying it's the same norms that govern philosophical inquiry in this case and practical um, craft production. And what are those norms in 3b um, uh, Roman 2? They are, at this point in the dialogue, 284e, all those kinds of expertise that measure in relation to what is in due measure, again, here making contact with the discussion of measure and value in the Philebus that, that Verity very helpfully explicates. In the Statesman, though, we find that there are a range of these kinds of due measure standards that include the fitting, the right moment, and what, it, what is as it ought to be ta metrion, ta prepon, ta chiron, and ta deon. Now, I think especially relevant to politics, as I've argued elsewhere, is the standard of ta chiron, the kairos, which is the standard of the right moment. And if we think about the philosopher who knows the good, we might say, well, again, we might have a couch potato philosopher who never returns to the cave, lies on their couch outside the cave, knowing the good, never even contemplating the question of what action should be taken at a particular moment. But the philosopher who has assumed the ergon, the job of statesman, of ruling, whether again as an armchair advisor or as an actual ruler, that philosopher has to formulate knowledge of the good in the precise context of what the kairos for action in a given moment requires. And arguably, I think, that's not then a lessening of precision. It's actually an intensification of precision. It's a more precise um, norm for, for epistemic knowledge 
that is relevant to statecraft and that will constitute, indeed, the knowledge of statecraft in that moment. And so I think we can't really say, in this case, in the politicus, whether these norms are practical or epistemic. They're defined as epistemic in a way. They measure their kinds of expertise that measure in relation to what is in do measure, again, in that quotation on the handout. So they're defined as forms of knowledge. They're epistemic in that sense. But they're forms of knowledge which are precisely defined by their, uh, their containing the knowledge insofar as it is relevant either to um, ruling or to other to uh, craft production or indeed to philosophical, certain kinds of philosophical inquiry. So I want to conclude then with a brief coda on the question of the value for a knower in being the kind of ruler whom the politicus um, articulates and defines. So again, I think a very illuminating part of Hart's paper was is her concluding discussion of the value for a knower in being a knower in the Philebus. And so we might ask, is there in Plato a value for a knower in being a ruler? Now, I think we do find that question asked in the Republic. So not in perhaps those words exactly, but I think if we think about the Republic, we find that question asked. We can gloss it as the question of why the philosopher should return to the cave. What's the value for the philosopher in returning to the cave? And of course, there's a complex set of considerations that if there's the wrong kind of value or incentive for someone to rule, that would be a bad thing. But in the statesman, we find the statesman is treated as a cipher. There's no discussion of that question. What would motivate someone to rule? Why should they rule? What value would they gain from ruling? There's no discussion of that question. And there's also no discussion of the paideutic dimension of the knower that's articulated in the Philebus, as Verity has um, beautifully brought out. As she says, the Philebus is very much concerned with the psychology of the knower, even as she pointed out in the written version, with the trophy, the care and feeding of someone such that they could become a knower. Right? It's very much concerned with education, formation, psychology of the person who will have the relevant kind of ethically valuable knowledge. But the politicus is completely silent about that. There's nothing in the politicus that tells us how could someone become a statesman, why would they become a statesman, what do they have to know, what dispositions do they need to become a statesman. The statesman is entirely and exhaustively defined by the form of knowledge um, that, char that characterizes them. The politicus is completely interchangeable with politicae, and we know who the politicus is only through and, and uh, completely through, so far as the dialogue is concerned, by defining politicae. And I, that's actually one reason why I think that even though the, the masculine noun forms are all used in the dialogue, so politicus, basilicos, the king, those are all masculine forms, I think we can sometimes refer to the statesman perhaps in gender-inclusive language because we know nothing about who this person is other than that they are defined by their form of knowledge. Now, I actually um, think, listening to Verity this morning, I thought that what, it was very interesting that she pointed out that in paideutic knowledge, in the Philebus, there's no room for divergence between the project of the knower and the project of the knowledge. 
And there's one sense in which that's true in the Politicus, as I've just tried to explain, the Politicos and their knowledge are interchangeable. And yet I think that also in the domain of politics leaves us with a real question. We might really want to know why would someone take up this role? What happens if they take it up for the wrong reasons? Those are political questions on which the Politicus, unlike the Republic, is silent. And I think that raises um, matter for further reflection. But here, what I want to um, simply conclude is that whatever the merits of the silence of the dialogue on that question, um, I think that the Politicus shows that the very distinction between the practical and the epistemic, between our usual ways of construing theory and practice, may in the platonic understanding of politics, at least in the Politicus, be misplaced. Thank you. Thank you.